Alrighty, um, so here we are tonight, praise God, class number 34. Uh, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you, Father. It's because of the love with which you've loved us, Lord, that we're here tonight. Lord, that we've lived another day to know the goodness of God, to see your goodness, to taste your goodness, to experience your goodness, Father, in the land of the living. Father, I thank you that you have more than a hundred year, more than a thousand year plan for our lives, Father. Lord, you knew us before we were ever formed in our mother's wombs. And Father, you've already seen us doing things beyond this life. And so, Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for helping us put this evening within the context of eternity. I pray, Father, that you'd help us tonight connect with truth in our inward parts, Lord. Something that, that would become grafted into us, that would, would change the way we see you and the way we see ourselves from this night forward. Father, that we would be transformed through the renewing of our minds this evening. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I ask, Father, tonight that my spirit, soul, and body become a portal through which your wisdom can pass from eternity into time and space. Father, that it would be as if you're speaking through me to these men and women both in this room and those watching through the broadcast and recording. And I thank you, Lord God, tonight that your word will be explained and expounded upon in a way that anyone who wants to hear it and understand it can receive it by the Holy Spirit. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen, Amen, Amen. All right, let's begin tonight in Hebrews, the seventh chapter, Hebrews chapter 7. And um, let me uh, speak just for a moment or two from Hebrews 7. And then we're going to back up into, uh, into Hebrews uh, number 6. Praise God. Alright, so we're going to start in 7, but then we'll back up into Hebrews chapter 6. Now, I'm going to ask you as always tonight, just to keep an open heart, keep an open mind. Um, we talk sometimes about pouring clear water in the top of a coffee maker, and by the time it passes through the filter in the grounds, it lands in the pot as something completely different. And many times our, our minds act like that filter. In other words, we take the pure Word of God, pour it into our preconceived ideas about God and what tradition has told us about Him and what Mom and Him's church said about Him and this kind of stuff. And, and by the time the, the pure truth pours into the top of our heads, it lands in our heart as something entirely different than what God said. And so again, tonight, I, I want you to just keep an open heart and open mind. We're going to talk about some things that are very controversial tonight. We're going to talk about some things that that um, I've actually had people come across tables at me before. And, you know, I'm just sitting there talking just like I'm talking to you right now. Um, and so I, I don't want anybody coming across a table at me. All right, I'm not, I don't expect that. I'm just kidding. But, um, but <laughs> so the, uh, amen. Um, <laughs> praise God. So folks out there couldn't hear you, Melanie. So I'm not, anyway, praise God. All right, so Hebrews 7. Um, I believe that if... Uh, <clears throat> Amen. Let me just read the verses. How about that? Hebrews chapter 7, let's begin at verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which the tribe Moses... So Hebrews 7 and 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Now, I mentioned this to you a few weeks back. Um, the, tribes in, the, the, the tribes were the uh, twelve sons uh, of Jacob. Jacob's name was changed by God to Israel, so the the twelve sons of Israel became the twelve tribes of Israel, also known as the nation of Israel. And all the descendants of Levi became the Levitical priesthood. There were people who had an issue with Jesus being the Messiah because He did not descend from Levi. In other words, how can He be the eternal high priest if He was from the tribe of Judah as opposed to the tribe of Levi? And so this is yet another one of these hang-ups, uh, obstacles that people had that the, the Holy Spirit through the writer of Hebrews is expounding upon. And it is yet, verse 15, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest. 
Now, we could spend the rest of our time together tonight talking about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate form of Jesus. In other words, he appeared to Abraham in the Old Testament as a priest, and this was the priest um, uh, to whom uh, Abraham paid tithes. And so when he says that Jesus is the eternal high priest, he's not after the order of, um, uh, of Levi, but after the order of uh, Melchizedek. Uh, Ryan, you do me a favor and grab that uh, purple chair there and carry it back for the gentleman who just came in. I know he, he needs uh, one of those chairs. I've, I've witnessed that. So, anyway, thank you, brother. Praise God. So, um, again, just to, to clarify and to answer... Uh, let me, tonight we're going we're gonna to break down some Scripture um, that many people point to as evidence from the Word of God that we can lose our salvation. Okay, And, and so we're going to take that, those verses in Hebrews 6 and, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna explain them. Okay? And so what we're going to do on a small scale tonight is what the Holy Spirit through the writer of Hebrews is doing on a big scale. He's taking systematically, piece by piece, each one of these major arguments that people had saying there's no way Jesus could be the Messiah because. There's no way Jesus could be the Messiah because. And he's explaining and giving very valid answers from the Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures, as to how this is the case. So again, there were those who said, you know, I'm a Jewish man or a woman, but Jesus is not the Messiah, and I don't believe He's the Messiah because He didn't descend from Levi. And he says, well, how about if He arose not from Levi but in the likeness of Melchizedek. Well, again, your ears may not have perked up, uh, but I promise you, a Jewish man or woman in first century, their ears would have perked up, okay? Who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. All right, I'm asking power there, right? For he testifies, and again, he's quoting from the Old Testament, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, which, uh, former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. Now, I want you to kind of file that away in your mind for a moment because we're going to come back to that before we're done tonight. But notice he says, for the law made nothing perfect. All right, so time out for some of you like, man, what in the world? He's already lost me. No, 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 just, just hang with me here for a moment. Remember, we've got, we've got two fundamental systems. We've got the old and the new. We've got the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and now we've got the New Covenant and the New Testament. Right? So we don't live under the Old System anymore. We live under the New System. But there were a lot of people in, in, in you know, the early days of, of our church, of the church, um, that you know, they, all they had known was temple sacrifices, the Levitical priesthood, um, all the, the different feasts and, 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 and days of observance and, and all these things. And now all of a sudden, you know, we've got this new message of salvation, you know, grace through faith, not obedience to the law and, and following the commandments and performance and based religion and these kinds of things. And this was a very hard pill for people to swallow. This was a very hard uh, transition for a lot of them to make. And it's sad to me, this many, you know, centuries later, it's still a hard one for people to make. And we weren't even, we're not even Jewish, nor were we raised Jewish. But we still labor under that old system and thinking that our righteousness is based upon our obedience as opposed to a gift that we've received by faith. Amen or oh me? Alright, so that law that everybody was trying to live up to to make themselves right before God in the eyes of God, that law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope. Aren't you glad for a better hope? 
Amen? There is a bringing in of a better hope. And we're not talking about some opening scene from Star Wars here. We're talking about uh, the hope that Jesus has brought into us through which this better hope we now draw near to God. All right, skip down with me to verse 23. Remembering the law made nothing perfect. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. Now remember, Jesus is, um, his, he is our priest according to the power of an endless life. The priest that descended from Levi, the Levitical priesthood, we see that these priests served until they either died or retired. And so once they died or retired, amen, they had to be replaced. But He, Jesus, because He continues forever, He has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, in light of this truth, He is also able to save to the uttermost. I see some of you underlining feverishly, okay? If you underline things in your Bible, I would underline that one right there. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. Since He always lives, power of an endless life, unchangeable priesthood, never going to die, He always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, Jesus is our advocate, but He's not just our advocate. He's not just pleading our case. He is our case. Remember, He is our propitiation. He is our redemption. He is our justification. And we are reconciled to God, made one with God through Him. We are in Him. Are you seeing this? He didn't just pay your debt. He is the payment for your debt. He didn't just like walk up and hand somebody a $100 bill and say, let him out of prison. You know, he, he, he became the redemption. He became the ransom. He became the payment secured. And He is that payment secured for us to, tonight, this, even now, for you and me. Amen. Are you seeing this? Alright? Alright, verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for some. Oh, no, wait, I misread that, didn't I? This he did once for most. This He did once for all when He offered up Himself. Once for all. One sacrifice for all sin for all time. He's not just a propitiation for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. Okay? For the law, verse 28, appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. There's that word perfected again. Alright? Now, I mentioned to you, uh, you know, perhaps you would like to underline the passage, verse 25. Therefore He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. So this word uttermost, what in the world does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Uttermost means completely, wholly, entirely, forever. Okay? He is able to save completely, wholly, entirely, forever those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. 
Are you seeing this? Alright? Saved to the uttermost. Saved completely. Saved wholly. W-H-O-L-L-Y. For those of you who are listening by audio device and can't see it on the screen. Okay? Not wholly like H-O-L-Y. Because we've been saved. W-H-O-L-L-Y. We are now H-O-L-Y. Okay? But we have been saved completely, wholly, entirely, forever. Saved to the uttermost. I don't know about you, but that just gets me jazzed right there. Okay? Now, turn with me, if you will, to a verse that we've looked at several times. And it's Hebrews chapter 10. We'll probably look at it at least one more time tonight. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 14. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 14. We're going to read a couple more verses along with this one, though. Hebrews 10, let's start at verse 14. Praise God. For by one offering... And that offering was what? Of Himself. For by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. For by one offering of Himself, one sacrifice for all sin for all time, He has perfected temporarily. Is that what it says? He has perfected until you make your next mistake. No, He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Again, this is one of those amazing verses that communicates you are a perfect work in progress. And you think, well, how can I be a work in progress and perfect at the same time? Well, it's the spirit part of you, the real you, that's been made perfect. Our soul, our mind, will, and emotions, our mind, emotions, wills being renewed. Amen? And our behavior is catching up, right? But the real you has been perfected forever. But the Holy Spirit, verse 15, also witnesses to us For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. So this is is the covenant that he told people under the old covenant that was coming. The covenant that we now live under. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. So he's quoting from the Old Testament what we now live in the reality of. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Now, I could go, again, 10, 15 minutes right here, but if you study the New Testament carefully, the commands that he's talking about writing in our hearts are the love commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the commands that he's writing on our heart. On those two commands hang all the Old Testament law and prophets Jesus taught us. Okay? So he says, I'm going to put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds I'll write them. In other words, he's talking about doing an inward work that's going to produce an outward manifestation. Remember, there was nothing wrong with the law. In other words, those laws are right. The problem with the law and its inability to make us righteous was the weakness of our flesh. Or as we've pointed out already, it was an outside-in approach. It was an outward standard that we were all trying to live up to but couldn't. Now notice what he's saying. He's taking this law from the outside of us and he's writing it on the inside of us. Right? He's putting it inside of us. Now, in addition to putting it inside of us, notice what he says in verse 17. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Now, again, people look at this and they're like, no longer an offering for sin. Oh, my goodness. There's no longer a sacrifice. You know, And there's people come up with all kinds of crazy ideas on that. Let me give you verse... 18, first of all from the Amplified Version. 
I'll put it on the screen. Now, where there is absolute remission, forgiveness, and cancellation of the penalty, that's what remission means. It means to be forgiven and for whatever punishment or penalty came because of the act to be canceled. So, now, where there is absolute remission, forgiveness, and cancellation of the penalty, absolute forgiveness, absolute cancellation of the penalty, what was the penalty? Death, eternal death, damnation in a devil's hell, right? Where there is absolute remission, there is absolute forgiveness and absolute cancellation of the penalty um, of these sins and law-breaking, there is no longer any offering made to atone for sin. Now, I like the Amplified because it breaks down the first part of that, but in my humble opinion, it still kind of leaves that last part vague. So let me give you one more translation. This is the God's Word translation. When sins are forgiven, there is no longer any need to sacrifice for sins. So that's what he means by no longer uh, sacrifice. In other words, the, the idea is because we have been so absolutely and totally forgiven once and for all, there's no reason for another sacrifice to be offered for us because none's needed. None is needed. Including sacrifices that you think you have to make because of your sin. Well, that's another story for another day. All right. Now then. Let's go to Hebrews, the sixth chapter. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Yes. Okay. Exactly. That's not what that word means. Okay, yeah, so great. Good point. Thank you. For those of you who couldn't hear, listen online. She says, you know, how does that relate to like someone that has an illness, cancer, or something that goes into remission? No, no, no. This is an absolute forgiveness cancellation, right? And so this is what, you know, it's another, I mean, when we gave the four salvation terminology, four key salvation terms, we could have put probably two more or three more in there, um, remission being one of those. Um, so, you know, the idea is the blood of Jesus has completely done away with that. So, in the Old Testament sacrifices, where there's no shedding of blood, there's no remission for sins. So, those animals would be sacrificed by an earthly priest, right, who would have to first offer a sacrifice for his sins, and then for those that he was, you know, mediating, advocating for. Um, but then any sin committed after that, another sacrifice would have to be offered. Because it did not, pre- pre- it did not provide absolute remission. Okay? So, let's say, so again, I'm not trying to blur the lines here. But if, a, if, if someone said that it's absolutely, rem- the, the disease is in absolute remission, and any ill effect that would ever come from that disease has been canceled out completely, then I guess it could apply there, right? Because that, again, is the, is the tone that's, that's being communicated here. So, great, great question, comment. Okay, now, I want to remind you of something that I've reminded you of throughout. Um, now, 34 classes in uh, to our time together. And that is, according to the greatest prophet born of a woman, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner for Jesus, who was to announce Him and who He was. Jesus came to do two things for you and for me. He came to do two things for every human being that ever lived on planet earth, okay? He came to take away our sins and to baptize us in the Holy Spirit. Alright? Now I understand some of you got baptized in the Holy Spirit last night. Congratulations. Alright? He came to take away your sins and He came to baptize you 
in the Holy Ghost? Yes. Excellent. I, and I'm getting there. Praise God. Okay? I'm getting there. If I don't mention that specifically before we're done, flag me again. Okay? But I think once, that's a, it, once you understand what we're going to talk about in chapter 6, then 1026 will, boom. Okay. All right. So, great question. Great question. But the idea is, that's speaking of people who have not received. A simple answer is, and I'll explain it to you in greater detail, that's speaking of people who have not yet received this sacrifice that Jesus made for their sins. You see what I'm saying? And we, we have this assumption that they, that they have received it, and they haven't, and I'll explain all that. Okay. After they've heard it, right? Okay, all right. So, um, so, again, he came to do two things for you. Take away your sin, baptize you in the Holy Ghost. Differences of opinions concerning these two things is responsible for more division in the body of Christ than any other doctrines. We could even say all other doctrines combined. Right? These, these denominational lines, are, are you with me tonight? Denominational lines are drawn around differences of opinions concerning taking away sins and baptizing in the Holy Ghost. Okay? Now, we've talked in here about battleground truth. The devil doesn't want you to know any truth, but there are certain truths that he's going to fight you tooth and toenail to keep you from understanding more than others. So anytime you see tremendous controversy surrounding something from the Word of God, you need to, you need to realize that there's something really important for you there, that the devil is trying to, dis to confuse you, to, to distract you, uh, to, to establish resistance around that, to keep you from ever coming to the knowledge of the understanding of the truth, where, where that truth, that specific truth, a particular truth, is concerned. And so again, when it comes to things like prosperity, when it comes to things like the words of your mouth, when it comes to things like faith confessions, when it comes to things like uh, salvation, and, and, and speaking in tongues, and, and the gifts of the Spirit. Highly, highly controversial, inflammatory in a lot of circles, so forth and so on. Again, you should realize, wow, this is really important because the more controversy and, and the more uh, you know, that's stirred up about this, the enemy, because God's not the author of confusion, right? So that tells you that the enemy is trying to bait and switch you here and confuse you here, all right? So, the burning question, I think, for so many is some variation of this. Once you're saved, can you become lost again? Or once you're saved, and I'm not being a smart aleck by saying it this way, but just, you know, once you're saved, can you become unsaved? Right? Can you, can you go back into spiritual death? Can you go back into, um, you know, the life that Jesus brought us out of? Now, we've already talked about what it takes for an orange to become an apple, right? You, 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 can't, you, you can't change an orange to an apple unless you change the seed that produced it. That's why we must be born again. And we've covered a lot of things, and I know some of you are not here for all the things that we've covered. I just literally, off the top of my heart, made a quick list of 12. So please don't try to write these down because it, it would take us you know, 15 minutes for you to write all these down. You've already got a lot of this in your notes already if you were here for these classes. But I want to I just, if I could, you know, real quick, um, or, he, or let, me, let me just be blunt about it. Does the Bible teach once saved, always saved? Let me look right into the camera, okay? <laughs> Does the Bible teach once saved, always saved? Right? 
again, you said, I told you it was going to be a little controversial tonight. I, I don't want you to be. There's answers here for us. We don't have to be afraid of this. Let's see what the Bible says. Let's not, let's, let's lose tradition and, and, you know, opinions, and let's just see what the Bible says, all right? So, we've already established from the Word of God that salvation comes through the new birth. Am I right about this? And the new birth is a literal experience. Or it's not figurative. It's literal. You were literally born a second time from a different seed. Am I right about this? So we spent, we spent two weeks, I guess, four hours almost, on that one point alone. In the course of that, number one, we said we were born from spiritual death. Number two, we were born again from an incorruptible seed, which gave us an indestructible heredity. Again, I've showed you this, all of this already in Scripture. It's, it's, in other words... <clears throat> You say, well, that's not, that's not the question, Pastor Mark. We got that, but what about that once saved, always saved stuff? Well, I'm getting there. But again, I just I want to show you things. A friend of mine wrote a song, and, it, and, it, and, it, and, and there's a line in it, and it goes like this. You've got to get a hold of the things that you know are true. You, in other words, you've got to start with what you know. This is true. If nothing else is true, this is true. All right? And then once you establish that, you build other things that you know are true on that, and you keep building that and building that and building that. Now, what's going to happen at some point is you're going to be left with a whole bunch of stuff that you know, mouth of two or three or more witnesses from the Word of God, Old Testament, New Testament, confirmed by the Holy Spirit. This is true. Then, once you have this big pile of stuff that you know is true, there's going to be some outliers that you're trying to figure out where they fit. Okay? Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10 are two of those really big outliers. In other words, all this is true, but, but if that's true, then what about this? Are you following me? Okay, so, so let me just keep going through the list. We know that we have already been given eternal life. Eternal life is not something that you receive when you die. It's something you receive when you're born again. So if you're born again, you have eternal life right now. Eternal Zoe, the life and nature of God in overflowing abundance without end. Again, John 3.16, and we can just go on and on with the verses. We know that to be true. Number four, we have been given an equal share in and have become partakers of the divine nature of God. We were born of His seed, we became a partaker of His nature. We were born the first time of the corrupted seed of Adam, and we became a partaker of the corrupted seed of Adam. We were born the second time of the incorruptible seed of the Word of God, and we became a partaker of the divine nature of God. Again, we've covered all of this in Scripture. We know this to be absolutely positively true. Now, sin is what causes spiritual death, and although this one has been kicked around in this room more than once over the last 34 weeks, the Bible clearly says at the spiritual level of our existence that the seed of God's life abides in us and that we cannot sin. Now, I'm not saying you physically can't sin. I'm not saying that you mentally or emotionally can't sin. But spiritually, the real you can't sin anymore. Because you've been born of an incorruptible seed and you've been given an indestructible heredity. Sin is what causes spiritual death and we cannot sin. When the Bible talks about um, if, if you live by the flesh, you die, he's talking about physical death. He's not talking about spiritual death there. Alright, you still with me? Furthermore, not only can we not sin, because of Jesus, the Bible says, Father is no longer keeping a record of sin. Number seven, Jesus is our propitiation, redemption, and justification, and He has eternally redeemed us. We looked at all this, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's established. We, an eternal redemption, an eternal Savior, an eternal salvation, eternal inheritance, eternal righteousness. 
We looked at all these. Again, the Bible says that. That's not Pastor Mark's opinion. That's not some you know, fuzzy math with the Scriptures. That's, I mean, we looked at it verse after verse. I mean, one class, we went through so many verses, I thought, my goodness gracious, how many verses can we cover in an hour and 40 minutes, right? Again, we, we can't set this aside. We know this is in the Bible. We've already covered it. Our right standing with God is not based upon our performance or behavior, but upon a gift we've been given and received. You're not righteous based upon your obedience. You're righteous based upon Jesus' obedience. You were not a sinner when you were a sinner because of your disobedience. You were a sinner because of Adam's sin, and you are righteous now because of Jesus' righteousness, because of His obedience. That's right. Glad somebody remember that. I started to go over that again tonight. Anyway, praise God. Ver number nine. We have been permanently planted in the grace that initially saved us. Romans 5. There's no one questions God's ability to save people. I mean, I don't know of anybody that does. But see, where the question is, okay, God could save us, but can He keep us saved? Man, He saved you when you were waving the middle finger of your life in His face. Now that you've been reconciled to Him, Romans 5 says, how much more now that you've been reconciled to Him by the blood of Jesus, right, will you be saved from wrath by Him? The love Jesus displayed on the cross was not the greatest love that God has. That was simply the love God has for His enemies. And we were all enemies of God when He did that for us. We're not His enemies anymore. We're His offspring. If He loved His enemies enough to bleed to death naked on the cross just so they would have the opportunity to perhaps one day call upon Him, how much more, how much more now that we've been born of His seed and have His Spirit in us? Number 10, the Holy Spirit now lives in us and according to Jesus, once He comes to live in us, He will live in us forever. Straight from the lips of the Master Himself written in red. Number 11, the Word says we are now separated from anything that initially or originally defiled us. We are now in our current condition because of the blood of Jesus without spot or blemish. Nothing remains to condemn us we are now in a state before God without accusation and are unaccusable. Covered all that last week, right? Who can bring a charge? Who's qualified to come before God the Father and accuse us of anything? The only individual qualified to even accuse you of sin is Jesus, and He is your priest. He is your advocate. He is your propitiation. He is your redemption. He is your justification. He is your reconciliation. Number 12, we are saved because of His great love with which He loved us. And the Bible clearly says that nothing, past, present, or future, will ever separate us from His love that has saved us. Now, I could go on and on. I, I just stopped at 12. 12 sounds like a good number. We could probably go to 100 here. Matter of fact, I'm, I was almost inspired to Put that on the project list, okay? These things clearly point to the permanent and eternal nature of our salvation. I don't have a problem saying once always saved. I'll say it. I, 
I don't, I'm not trying to make anybody mad. I'm not trying to antagonize anybody. But let me tell you what Pastor Mark prefers. I prefer once born, always born. Because we were saved through a new birth. Are you following me now? Now, there's no such thing as being unsaved. But again, if you want to believe there's unsaved, how do you explain unborn? See, once you've been born, you can't be unborn. You can be born and die, but you can't be born and then somehow be unborn. Because my life's hidden in Him. And He is my life. Literally. He is my resurrection. He is my life. That was our Easter sermon here at Heritage. Jesus, my resurrection, right? And my life. Amen. Amen. All right? So, once born, always born, because we were saved through a second birth. It was a second birth that saved us. And just like Jesus, He was the firstborn from the dead. We were born after Him from death. And because He will never die again, we were raised up together with Him to newness of life, and that's when we received eternal life. Now, again, I'm building up to Hebrews chapter 6. Anytime you have a situation where Scripture seems to present two opposing or contradicting positions, listen to me now, I said meat and taters tonight, so we're going meat and taters, we're going all in, you ready? Anytime you have a situation where Scripture seems to present two opposing or contradicting positions, there is, and I put it in all caps in my notes, there is always an explanation. Always. God is not confused. He didn't forget what He said in the Old Testament and said something different in the New Testament because He's just getting old. He's been around several million years and He forgot what... No, no. None of that. None of that. Okay? People are confused. Men get confused. God's not confused. He is not confused. Okay? Now, I'm going to step off subject for a minute because I really felt led by the Holy Spirit to do this. Number one, because it helps make the point. But number two, somebody in here needs to hear this. So let me give you an example, an example of what I mean by this. Anytime you have a situation where Scripture seems to present two opposing or contradicting opinions, positions, there's always an explanation. A classic example of this is what the Bible teaches us about tests, trials, and temptations. Classic example. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no man say when he is tested, tempted, or tried, he is being tested, tempted, or tried by God. For God cannot be tested, tempted, or tried by evil, nor does He test, tempt, or try any man. That word evil there is the Greek word kakos, and it literally means to pull back, stop short of the full measure. Every test, trial, or temptation that we experience in life, it's pressure from the enemy trying to get us to back away from, take the path of least resistance to an inferior life. Okay? So again, God says, let no man say. I've heard lots of men say it in three-piece suits from pulpits. The microphone in one hand, the Bible in the other. How God's testing you. How God's tempting you. How God's putting you through the trial, the fiery trial. And yet the Scriptures say, let no man say that. Let no man say that. Are you still with me tonight? Alright, so now let me give you an example. So James 1.13 says, let no man say it. Genesis 22 and 1 says, and God did test Abraham. <laughs> right? It's like, well, hold on a second, God. Wait a second now. Did you, you, you I mean, that, that, what's up here, right? Again, do you see this? It seems to me like there's a, there's a contradiction here. It seems to me like 
we've got two verses that are, that are opposing one another or contradicting one another. But again, anytime it seems like that, there's always an answer. There's always an answer. He's hidden the wisdom for us, not from us, but if it's hidden, what does it require? It requires some digging, right? It requires some prayer. This word, the Bible spiritually discerned. There are people... Uh, there were people in Jesus' day who could quote the Old Testament backwards and thought he was a liar, a, a, a nut, a demon-possessed Samaritan with suicidal tendencies, and they wouldn't stop until they killed him. And they could quote the Bible backwards. Literally, they could start at Malachi and quote the Old Testament backwards. Okay? All right, so again, you won't know the Scriptures until you know the God of the Scriptures until the Holy Spirit leads you into these things. Okay, now watch this. God did test Abraham. So either, either there's an explanation or there's a contradiction there's always an explanation. So I started researching this. The word translated test, and so this is what you have to understand about translation. Are you ready? One word can have multiple meanings. Am I right about it? I think I used, last week or two, I used the example of the word trunk. Are we talking about an elephant? Are we talking about a tree? Are we talking about um, you know, something you put keepsakes in? Or are we talking about something you put luggage in on the back of your car? You know, it's one word, four different meanings. So when a translator comes to a word that has multiple meanings and he's not sure which one fits, obviously, if the Holy Spirit doesn't show him and he's not in tune with the Holy Spirit, he's going to go with what his doctrine tells him is right. Amen or oh me, but that's just the simple reality of it. Now this is where, again, we had some questions last week about King James Version and all other stuff. I'm not trying to make anybody nervous here. Just hear me out, please. This word could have been, and in my humble opinion, should have been translated because it also means venture. Not that God did test Abraham, but that God did venture him. Venture. Anybody ever heard of a venture capitalist? What does a venture capitalist do? A venture capitalist believes that somebody's got a great idea and they're going to put their money where their mouth is and, and support that great idea in belief of a future gain. Did God not take Abraham on a great adventure? Was his whole life not a venture? When he called him out of Ur of Chaldees and said, Come on with me, son. And he said, Where are we going? And he said, I'll tell you when we get there. And he said, Sounds good to me. Let's go. That's a venture right there if I've ever heard of one, right? Saddle up your horses. Now here's the other thing you've got to understand about venture. God and Abraham happened to be in blood covenant with one another. And the terms of a blood covenant involved, if, if one, involved this. If one member of that covenant made a demand on the other party in that covenant, he was at the same time obligating himself to do that very thing in the future. Let me explain. Me and Kim McCain, let's say we're in blood covenant with one another. And I say, hey Kim, you're my blood covenant brother. And I sure do like that new pickup truck you've got, right? I think, I think I'd like to have that. Well, the moment I ask him for that, as my covenant brother, he is required to give that to me. But guess what? At any point in the future now, I have obligated myself to do the same for him. Anytime someone in covenant with another party, and we don't understand covenant, and we need some more time in these classes to teach about covenant. That's another subject for another day. But again, two people in covenant with one another, when one party makes a demand on the other, they are obligating themselves to do that same thing for them. 
So when God ventured Abraham and said, would you please take your 30-year-old son and put some wood on his back and go up on top of that mountain and sacrifice him to me, what do you think God the Father was obligating Himself to do one day for the descendants of Abraham? Send His 30-year-old son up on top of a mountain with wood on his back to be offered as a sacrifice for all of us. See, it's a venture. It's God making a down payment, making a commitment obligating himself. Now remember, Abraham draws the knife back to plunge it into Isaac's chest and God stopped him and he said the Lord himself will provide a sacrifice and that ram was caught in the thicket. That's why Jesus could have on that cross called for a legion of angels to come and get him and take him out of there. If, if Abraham had to plunge the knife into Isaac's chest, Jesus' fate would have, would have been sealed. He would have not had the option of saying no, but aren't you glad he didn't say no? So, again, there's an answer. There's an answer. Now, for me personally, there is... So let's go back to it again now. All these things, right? All this truth is piling up and it's undeniable and, and we've, we've, we've looked it up in multiple translations and, and we went to the original language and we've even checked you know, this and, and it's verse after verse after verse after verse and the mountain now of biblical evidence supports this position. The mountain of biblical evidence supports speaking in tongues as a separate subsequent work to salvation. The, a mountain of evidence. Are you hearing me? It's not just like one person trying to shoehorn one scripture and stretch it to fit. A mountain of evidence. But now we've got these verses that are outliers. And there's always going to be that one outlier that doesn't seem to fit. On the subject of test trials and temptations, the one for me was found in the Lord's Prayer. Where Jesus taught us to pray after this manner. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I'm like, Father, why in the world would Jesus tell us to pray and ask you not to lead us into temptation when you told us to never say you would test, tempt, or try any man. This didn't make sense to me. Are you with me? Didn't make sense to me. I preached on this subject, I don't know, Pam, how long? Did I preach on this for a year? I preached on it for a long time. I never had an answer for that one. It was probably a year and a half later. I was laying out in, 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 the, in the floor in the sanctuary one day with the lights out and I was praying. I wasn't even praying about it. I'm not saying I had given up on it, Brother Kenneth E. Hagin, he used to say, if you don't understand something, put it on a shelf, and there'll come a day when you will. And so I put it on a shelf. And I was laying out, the, I, wasn't even, I wasn't even thinking about it, I wasn't praying about that, I was praying about some other things, and clear as a bell, the Holy Spirit brought it back to my attention. And he said, the answer, the answer is in the grammar. The answer is in the tense of the verb. I got up, I went to my office. I'm excited. Because I'm fixing to find my answer, right? I have um, different study Bibles. One of the study Bibles I have, do you understand like an exponent on a number? Like you got a number and there's like a little number up by it? Okay. So this Bible takes 
and it puts little letter abbreviations over verbs for folks like me who don't speak Greek to know what that tense is. And so I'm, I'm finding, looking, and there it is. I've, ne- I've looked at it in that Bible before, but I've never seen it. Okay? So lead us not into temptation. So right here on that Bible were these four letters, just like that. Can you see that in the back? That says A-O-S-I. A-O-S-I. And man, at this point, I'm like, I'm just, I'm getting stoked. I'm, I'm literally, I'm starting to tremble, right? So, I don't know what A-O-S-I is. But I know that my Bible's going, this study Bible's going to tell me what it is, right? And so, I, I went to the a key, the study key, <coughs> and I looked up A-O-S-I. And this is what it told me. It said, that verb tense is a orist subjunctive imperative. What is that? Okay? So now I'm researching what is aorist subjunctive imperative, right? Aorist subjunctive imperative is a verb tense meaning do not do what you are not doing or have never done. Do not do what you are not doing or have never done. All right? Now, I'm like, Lord, you're going to have to show me. I, I know this. I know, I know, I know, I know, right? He, the Holy Spirit's on me. I know. I'm like, help me with this, right? He brought me back. He brought me back to a time in the church when there were children running in the hallways. And my son was standing there because he knows not to run in church. But I saw the look on his face. He wasn't running, but he wanted to run. Right? And he's like looking at them, and he's looking at me. And Chad looked at him and I said, do not run. Do not run. That was a or subjunctive imperative. I was telling him not to do something he was not doing. Right? He wasn't running. But notice I said, do not run. I didn't tell him to stop running. If I said, John Mark, stop running, that would have meant he was running and I'm telling him to stop. He was not running and I was telling him not to run. Do not run. Yes, sir. Okay? Now let me show you how close the translators actually were. It reads, lead us not into temptation. Now, if you want to, again, you just pray about this, all right? But I think some light bulbs are fixing to go off in somebody's heart. Are you ready? This is how close they came. It should read, Our Father who art in heaven, He leads us not into temptation. He leads us not into temptation. Never has, never will. He leads us not into temptation, but what does He do? He delivers us from evil. He doesn't lead me into temptation. He's the one who delivers me from the evil that's behind temptation. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away by evil, drawn away by his own lust and enticed. My good Father in heaven does not lead me into temptation. Do not do what you've never done or ever will do. He leads me not into temptation, but He delivers me from evil. Do you know our current Pope went public with this not long ago? I had people calling me I had people calling me from, from other parts, you know, that have heard me teaching this before. Pastor Mark, the Pope agrees with you, right? 
he literally came out and publicly said that this was a mistranslation and it should say, he leads us not into temptation, but delivers us from evil. Okay? Are you still with me? Are you seeing this now? Okay. Because there's always an interpolation. There's always an interpretation. There's always an explanation. Are you with me still? Okay, let's go to Hebrews 6 now. Hebrews 6. Yes, we were. Praise God. Has it been that long? Sweet Jesus. All right. So, full disclosure, you ready? I started out on the other side, or I believe the wrong side of this discussion. In other words, I started believing that you could lose your salvation, and the harder I studied and worked to prove myself right, the more I became convinced I was wrong. I felt compelled that somebody in here needed to hear that. I was born again five years old in the Southern Baptist Church. And my Southern Baptist brothers taught me once saved, always saved. But they also taught me that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not for today and that if I spoke in tongues or if anybody else spoke in tongues, they were of the devil. At 12 years old, we went to a Pentecostal church. And I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. So what happened for me was, I thought because my Baptist brothers were so wrong about the Holy Spirit that they had to be wrong about salvation. My Pentecostal brothers told me that if you sin after you're saved and don't ask God to forgive you, you're going to hell. And I believed it hook, line, and sinker. Some of the things I am most ashamed of in life is there are people today that I argued out of the truth where this is concerned. Now, I don't say this as much anymore, but I feel compelled again to say it tonight, and I, I promise you I do not mean this arrogant. There, arrogantly. There have been people who've left this church because of what I preach and believe about this. And when they came to talk to me about it, I'm trying to love on them and be gentle and be kind, right? And I don't, I don't mean this ugly, okay? But just hear me, please. I knew their argument against this better than they did. I, I'm, I'm just telling you. I'm like, dude, if, you, you know, if you're telling me all these reasons why I'm wrong, you left out this one, this one, and this one, right? In other words, are you following what I'm saying? Because I used to argue that side of it. Remember, my drug of choice was Pentecostal legalism, okay? Amen. Self-righteousness, okay? All right. But what happened is the more I learned and the more the Lord revealed Himself to me and the more I began to understand, right? The mountain, back to that mountain, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's overwhelming. But then you've got these outliers. You've got these things that, you've got these Matthew 6's, right? Lead us not into temptation. You've got, you got these Genesis 22's that, and God did test Abraham. You know, that don't seem to fit with all this whole other mountain of evidence. Again, had to be an explanation. So for me, the, the, the outlier, it all boiled down to Hebrews 6. It was the last big obstacle. And again, I knew based upon the mountain, overwhelming mountain of, of biblical evidence to support eternal salvation, eternal redemption, there had to be an understanding, an explanation for what I thought and what I had been taught Hebrews 6 to mean. Now, Hebrews is a unique letter. 
in that it is the only one not written directly to the church, the saints, or another believer. If you look at Rome, it says either to the church at Rome or to the saints at Rome. If you look at Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, the letter Peter wrote to the saints, two letters to the saints, the letter Paul wrote, the two letters he wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, the ones he wrote to Titus, the ones that were written to Philemon, Jude, the ones John wrote. Again, I write to you, little children. He's talking about all of these letters, every single one of them, with one exception, has been written to born-again believers. The only exception is an open letter to the Hebrew people. Hebrews does not begin to the Christian Hebrews. It does not begin to, it does not begin, this letter is now written to all Jewish men and women who've been born again. It is an open letter to Hebrew people. And the Holy Spirit through the writer of Hebrews, we do not know who wrote Hebrews. I personally believe the Apostle Paul wrote it, but there's no proof for that. I don't, I, again, that's my personal belief. I could be wrong on that. Anytime I give you an opinion, I tell you it's an opinion, that's my opinion. It's based, I have reasons for it, but there's no need for going all that right now. The writer of Hebrews has written this letter to the Hebrew people because there are Hebrews still alive on planet earth that are getting up in, in years now. Many of them have already died. Jewish men and women who experienced firsthand the earthly ministry of Jesus, tasted of the coming kingdom and the power of that kingdom in their own lives. They witnessed it. They experienced it. They had children healed by Him. Some of them were healed by Him. They had family members that had demons cast out of them. Some of them ate until their bellies were about to burst on a fish and chips buffet that Jesus produced from a little boy's sack lunch. Are you hearing me? People who experienced Him, who tasted of the heavenly gift, but had not yet invested saving faith in Jesus and received Him as their Messiah. And the writer of Hebrews is going after them. And he's doing it in systematic, Paul-like fashion. Quoting from the Old Testament, but showing them line upon line, line upon line, Precept upon precept, precept upon precept, dispelling every argument, and at the end of every argument, presenting once again, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He is your great high priest. He is the, he is the sacrifice. One sacrifice for all sins. Over and over again. Now we come with that background understanding to verse number 1, Hebrews 6 and 1. Therefore, Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Wait a second, I just messed up here. Praise God. Oh man, I left seven and eight out of this. All right, that's okay. That's all right. <clears throat> Let me get there in my notes. So you read this and you think, well, I mean, case closed. There it is, Pastor Mark. All right? So I understand what it seems like this is saying, but do we take this 
you know, this one passage and cancel out 85? Are, are, are you understand what I'm saying here? No, it's, so, so what about the Holy Spirit living in us forever and eternal redemption and, 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 and an endless life and, and all these other things? All right? You, I feel some of you slipping away. Stay with me now, please. All right? Now, I believe that these verses are among some of the most misunderstood. So let's go back. Let's go back to verse 1. Praise the name of the living God. I've got verses in here that I don't know why they're here. And that's confusing me. So it's alright. Verse number 1. We'll do it here. Therefore. Are y'all still good? Key words. Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Let us go on to perfection. Alright? Now... Leaving and let us go on. Two key phrases that set the tone for unraveling the entire passage. So let's spend a minute. The word leaving is a verb meaning to put or place with a preposition prefixed which means off or away. The Expositor's Greek Testament translates it, let us abandon. The offered translation explains it in the words, leaving as behind and done with in order to go on to another thing. Now, I'm not going to do this with every word, but I want to try to at least give you some feel for what I mean by drilling down into a passage. Okay, can you stand just a little bit of this? Now, this word leaving is an aorist participle. And Greek grammar tells us that the action of the aorist participle precedes the action of the leading verb in the sentence. Which the leading verb in the sentence in this case is translated, let us go on to perfection. Okay? The the aorist tense speaks of a once for all action. So he's not talking about something we do for a minute and then go back. He's talking about, again, that's why expositors and Alfred translates this as either let us abandon or leave it behind and done with in order to go on to something else, go on to another thing. So we could literally translate this portion of this passage, therefore, having abandoned once for all the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. That sounds like blasphemy to me. I'm like, dude, what? Whoa, 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 that can't be right. Let's keep digging. The act of abandoning, that's what this word, leaving, abandoning, the act of abandoning is the prerequisite to that of going on. In other words, it's a requirement. You can't go on until you abandon. Are you with me? 
one cannot go on without first separating oneself from that to which one is attached. So he's saying to these Hebrew people, you're attached to something that you can't move forward until you release it. You've got to release something in order to embrace something else. You've got to turn loose of one thing in order to lay hold of the next thing. The word translated let us go on is first person plural subjunctive. Now, this is used for um, speaking purposes in the Greek or what we might call in the English an exhortation. Another way of exhorting one in Greek is to use the imperative mode. In other words, the imperative mode. If something is imperative, it is an absolute. It is a must. It, it, it can't. In other words, there's no way around it. There's no other option. There's no other substitute. So, there is a classification of the participle in Greek which is designated the participle used as an imperative. Are you still with me? Our word abandoning then is an imperative participle. That means it's giving a command. This word leaving is the structure of it in the original language is not just a suggestion, it is a command. It is an absolute. In other words, if they do not leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, they will never be able to go on to perfection. Are you still with me? Alright, now. So the key thought here is, we are being commanded, or most, most importantly, the Hebrew people who originally received this letter are being commanded to let go of one thing so that they can go forward with another. And if they refuse to release the first, it will prevent them from laying hold of the second. Alright? Yes? Now, let's talk about let us go on. This word in the Greek means to carry or to bear. So this passage is instructing the reader to abandon one thing once and for all and to be carried forward with another thing to be born upon it, to be carried by it. Not just pick it up and carry it, but to be carried by it. So then, the question we need to answer next is, what were they to abandon, and what were they to pick up, embrace, and continue on with? They were to abandon the elementary principles of Christ so that they could go on to perfection. Now again, that seems so... Wait a second. No, no, no. The elementary principles of Christ, that's what we need to pursue, not release. Again... Let's dig deeper. Am I losing you? Are you still with me? The elementary principles of Christ is speaking of a literal translation would be the word of the beginning of the Christ or the beginning word of the Christ. So when we hear basic principle of Christ, we're thinking that you know these are the things that Jesus came to teach us, but that's not what this means here. The initial and earliest things that began to introduce or reveal Him to them. The earliest things that spoke of Him. The earliest things that revealed Him. The earliest things that gave them a glimpse to the Messiah and who He would be and what He would be like. What were those things? Those were the trappings of that old covenant. That was the beginning of the revealing of the Christ to the Hebrew audience. 
In other words, the Messiah was first revealed to them in those Old Testament sacrificial practices. They would bring a lamb to the temple to be sacrificed. All symbolic of the day when the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the world, Jesus Himself would come and be the sacrifice for all sin for all time. Are you still with me? What is one of the main messages of the book of Hebrews in the first place? The Old Testament system of temporary sacrifices for sin has been done away with by the New Testament system of Jesus' eternal payment for sin. That's one of the main messages of the book of, Hebrew, of the book of Hebrews. So when he says you've got to turn loose of one in order to embrace the other, they were clinging to that Old Testament system. That Old Testament system was where they first heard of Jesus. It's where they were first introduced to the Christ. It's where they first began to, to be you know, taught the prophecies and, and what He would one day do among them. But they were clinging on to the type and the shadow. And as long as they clung to the type and the shadow, they could not embrace the real Jesus. This is why He says we absolutely positively must... Leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. The things that you first heard that introduced you to Him so that we can go on to the perfection of Christ. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Now you have to excuse me for a minute because some of this is out of order and I'm trying to find it. Okay? Thank you, Jesus. All right, I know what we're doing here. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Oh, praise God. Mm. We might just tell everybody here to come in here with us tonight. Praise God. All right. Let me go back to it. Are you st let's review. You still with me? Meat and taters. Meat and taters. Let me, let me tell you what I've done before. And I'm not saying I was wrong about it, but I was wrong about it. Okay? I've taught foundation series, and I've used all of these things as points of the series, never understanding what this was really saying. Okay? Now, I'll explain that in just a moment. But before we get there, let's review. The whole, remember I said leaving and let us go on is going to help you unravel the rest of this. If you don't get this, then the rest of it's not going to make any sense to you either. Right? So let's slow down here for a minute. He says we've got to abandon the things that first revealed Jesus to us so that we can go on to perfection. Don't try to keep up. I'm going to put them all on the screen. Just watch the screen. Okay? Let's go with, um, praise God. Let's go with Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for Him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation, what? Perfect through sufferings. For both He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason He's not ashamed to call them brethren. Hebrews 5, 9. Let's go there. Just on the screen. And having been perfected, He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. 
Chapter 7, verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? So again, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, there would be no need for another priest. Same chapter, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Verse 28, For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been what? Perfected forever. Verse Chapter 9, verse 9, It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make Him who performed the services perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Chapter 10, verse 1, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year make those who approach Perfect. Are you seeing something here? God is trying to perfect you. God is trying to make you perfect. The old system could not make anything perfect. The old priests could not make anything perfect. The old sacrifices could not make anything perfect. The old law could not make anything perfect. But Jesus has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The perfection that He's talking about in chapter 6 is the perfection that He talks about throughout the entire book of Hebrews and he's referring to the perfection that can only be received, that can only be accomplished through receiving Jesus' perfect work for us. Oh, you got time for one more. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, somebody give me a salute, who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Praise the name of the living God. Praise the name of the living God. And to Jesus. Come on now the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Alright, so not laying again the foundation. Not laying again the foundation. Go back with me now to Hebrews. Let's go back with me now to Hebrews chapter 6. i got notes to keep up with notes up here. Praise God. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 6, not laying again the foundation. Not laying again the foundation. Alright? Notice the foundation of what? Repentance from dead works. So, in the Old Testament was repentance from dead works. But Jesus didn't teach us repentance from dead works. Jesus taught us repentance towards God. There's a difference between repenting from versus repenting to. Repentance from dead works is, an old, is part of that Old Testament system. We're not in Kansas anymore. We're in the New Testament system now, right? The New Testament is not repentance from dead works. It's repentance towards God because our dead works have been purged. Our repentance towards God is, is, is the new condition of mind based upon this new reality. Same is true when he talks about faith towards God. Our faith is not towards God. Our faith is in the completed work of Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament. He then talks about 
going on from the doctrine of baptisms, not laying again that foundation, not keep repeating that. That's speaking of the ceremonial washings. We covered that in one of those verses just a moment ago. In the New Testament, it's the cleansing of the conscience from dead works. Titus 3.5 talks about this. I'm not going to spend time there. Old Testament, laying on of hands. Leviticus 1.4 Then he shall put his hands on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. In the New Testament, it's the crucified, buried, and raised with Jesus. In the Old Testament, they would literally put their hands on a scapegoat and symbolic of putting the sins on that goat and then send that goat out from the camp and separating the sins of the people from the people. That was the laying on of hands. See, we think this is speaking of laying on of hands for healing and laying on of hands to pray for people. No, no, no. Laying on of hands is part of that Old Testament system. He says we, we can't, that's not what we do anymore. We are crucified, buried, and raised with Christ. Right? So, then he talks about in the Old Testament, the resurrection of the dead. In the New Testament, we've been what? Born from the dead. Old Testament talks about eternal judgment. New Testament is Jesus judged and punished as our substitute and therefore no condemnation. Amen. Are you seeing, are you seeing this? Going too fast for you? Probably am. Okay. I'm trying to get to this last part though. So let me take a breath. Drink of water. Okay. So he's taught the elementary principles are not the basic teachings of Jesus. It's the things from the Old Testament that first introduced Him to us. Those were the things those people had to turn loose of in order to embrace Jesus and be saved. Right? Not laying again that foundation that was all based upon Old Testament practices, but moving to the new foundation and the New Testament version of each one of those things. Right? Now, that brings us to verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Thank you, Jesus. Let me get there in my notes. Amen. If I wing it, it'll take me two hours. And we don't have it. Amen. For it is impossible. Are you seeing this? Hebrews 6 and 4. Are you get anything out of this? For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Let's break this whole verse down. Look at some key words. When it says it's impossible, this is speaking of the condition of their hearts and not because of God's grace. Remember, Jesus could not do any mighty work in His hometown. Not because He didn't have the power to do it, but because of the condition of the people's hearts. They wouldn't receive Him or allow Him to do it. Now, this phrase, once enlightened, in the original language, it means the truth was clearly revealed to them by the Holy Spirit such as it did not need to be repeated or clarified any further. See, we, we, if we're not careful, we just the casual observer will think this means these people got saved. No, they were enlightened. Meaning, the truth that was previously hidden was revealed. The lights were turned on, and His name is Jesus. And they experienced Him. They witnessed Him. They saw Him. So clearly was it revealed to them by the Holy Spirit that it did not need to be repeated or clarified any further. That's what this phrase, once enlightened, means. So, it's impossible because of the condition of their hearts, people who were once enlightened. What does the Bible say about those who hear the voice of God but don't respond to Him? It hardens your heart. You see, when, when Father God moves on your heart by the Holy Spirit and you resist Him, it creates a callous 
on your heart and it makes it easier to resist Him the next time and easier to resist Him the next time. So now we see that these people have been enlightened, but they have resisted. Notice it says, and have tasted the heavenly gift. You remember the spies who went to the promised land? They brought back produce from the promised land. But what? They, they refused to go into that promised land out of fear. They refused to turn loose of what they had because they were concerned that they would you know, fail in the process. It was a big deal in those days to break from the temple and embrace Jesus. There was a lot of persecution. There, there were a lot of, you know, it was kind of like you know, some of our churches today. You know, it was a good old boy network and, and you know, people in, in, your, in your temple went, you know, synagogue did business with you and you did business with them. This was a scary thing. Are you following what I'm saying? So these people had been enlightened. They had tasted the heavenly gift, but there was a fear on their part to really confess Jesus and receive Him as their Savior. Are you still with Pastor Mark? I want you to, I want you to see this now. These people, again, these were folks who had experienced Jesus' ministry. They had witnessed miracles, supernatural signs and wonders performed by Him, witnessed them in person. And again, partakers of the Holy Spirit. This word does not mean the same thing as that word in 2 Peter, where it means to have an equal share in. This word simply means to participate together with. Meaning what? They encountered Jesus. They encountered or experienced the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, And have tasted the good Word of God. Well, did Jesus not present and preach the Word of God? Did they not hear that and experience that? Yes, they did. And the powers of the age to come. The powers of the age to come. Every miracle Jesus did on planet earth, He did as the kingdom of God and through and by the kingdom of God. That was the age that, that was to come. Speaking of the kingdom here. You still with me? Verse 6. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Alright? So, mm, fall away. Again, we hear that. We think somebody's been saved. We assume they've been saved and now they have fallen away. There it is, Pastor Mark. Somebody can be saved and fall away. Again, the incorrect assumption is that these people have been saved. These people have not been saved. These people were very close to being saved. Remember King Agrippa. He heard Paul's testimony and he said, Almost persuadest thou me to be a Christian. But he didn't. I hope he did at some point in his life because if he didn't, he didn't. Amen. And we know what that means, right? Alright. Now, this expression, fall away, is used only one time in the entire New Testament, right here. And it simply means to deviate from the right path, to turn aside, to wander. To deviate from the right path, to turn aside, and to wander. So notice now, these people were on a pathway to salvation. These people were hearing Jesus. They're experiencing Jesus. They're interested in Jesus. They're thinking about Jesus. You remember when Jesus preached that sermon about eating His flesh and drinking His blood and the Bible says that, that thousands walked away from Him that day and followed Him no more? I guarantee you some of the folks that this letter was written to is, is those folks. They were on the right path. They were going after Jesus. They were listening to Him. They were considering Him. They come to some of His meetings. They may even gave Him an offering, right? But now they have deviated from that path. 
they've turned aside to renew them again to repentance. So again, repentance, what does repentance mean? Repentance doesn't mean quit sinning. Repentance means a new way of thinking. Metanous in the Greek. A change of mind. A new condition of mind. So these people at one point in their lives, their minds were changing. At one point in, in their lives, they were considering Jesus. At one point in their lives, they believed that He may very well be the Messiah. But they never followed through and received Him as Savior. Now, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Now this is about to get a little heavy. You ready? Like we haven't been heavy already. If you look at this in different translations, understanding what I've said up until this point, do I need to review it? Are you good? Each individual who had experienced the earthly ministry of Jesus, heard Him preach, tasted of His power, experienced the Holy Spirit working through Him and in Him, heard His message, considered Him to quite possibly be the Messiah, attended some of His meetings, but at some point in their lives deviated from that path and chose another course in life. Each one of the men and women who made that choice were just as guilty as the men who crucified Him because they too have judged Him to not genuinely be the Messiah. Each person who hears of Jesus and turns away from Him instead of turning to Him is guilty of the same thing that the men who brought Him to a kangaroo court trumped up false charges against Him and had Him tortured and crucified because what was in those men's hearts? In those men's hearts, they said, He is not the Messiah. He is certainly not our Messiah. He is certainly no king to us. He is an imposter. He is a phony. He is a fake. He is a fraud. And He is deserving of nothing from us but the worst treatment possible and death. And the writer of Hebrews is laying it on heavy by the Holy Spirit right here to these men and women. He is saying you are no different from them. You are no different because you also now have nailed Him to that tree. You also are saying He is not worthy to be called the Messiah. He is a fake. He is a phony. He is a fraud. That this Jesus who healed your babies, this Jesus who fed you on a hot summer day, this Jesus who cast out demons in front of your very eyes, you have made a judgment against Him. You have said He is not your King. You are not willing to turn loose of your cushy life down at the synagogue in order to be a follower of Jesus. But He also took it one step further. He said, not only are you guilty of what they're guilty of, you are actually guilty of something worse because at least those heathen soldiers 
soldiers had the decency to take him down off that cross and give him a proper burial. You have left him hanging there in your life. You've left him hanging on that cross and you are leaving him in a, in a shameful, open, naked position before the whole world by your decision. Verse 7. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those to whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. He's still talking to these people. He didn't just like decide to talk about nature all of a sudden. What is he saying? He's saying in the same way rain falls across the earth, the pure rain of God's truth and Spirit has come upon you. In some cases, it produces a bountiful harvest. In other cases, it bears thorns and briars. And if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's go all the way back now to chapter 4 and verse number 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, I'll let you turn there. Amen. Go ahead. Praise God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed... The gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. What is he saying? He said, we heard the same gospel you heard. But if you don't mix faith with what you hear, if you don't believe and receive, confess with your mouth, Right? You're not going to be saved. Now, when we talk about the passage in chapter 10 and verse 26, I am getting better at it over the years, but in my early years of learning and growing the things of God, I always look for a hard answer. That was why I think the Holy Spirit was trying to teach me all along about leads us not into temptation. But see, I was looking for something really hard. I had no idea we just needed to put an S on lead and move on. You know what I'm saying? Are you hearing me? Right? Okay. And so sometimes we look for a much more complicated answer. When the answer is not complicated, it's actually really simple. It's really simple. And so the simple thing is this. If we reject the sacrifice that has been made for our sins, there's not going to be another sacrifice. Let me say it another way. If you miss the bus to Houston, there's not going to be another, bu- another, bus to, another bus to Houston, right? There's not going to be another bus to Houston. In other words, if you reject this Messiah, there's not going to be another one. If you don't allow this sacrifice to cover your sins, then there remains no other sacrifice. There's not going to be any other way for your, sac- for your sins to be forgiven or to be removed. That's the only That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. We live in a politically correct world where the only sin is intolerance, 
And so how dare you, you know, be so uh, stubborn or what have you. But that's what Jesus said. There's not many ways to God. There's only one way to God. There's not many ways to be forgiven. There's only one way to be forgiven. And that's through the blood and the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Now, I only do this about every other or third year. um, Mainly because there are so many other things that are not quite this tedious that I like to spend time on. I feel like some of you may be somewhere around the middle of that. Um, you know, it's like, okay, whatever, all right? I'm, I'm not, I don't ever want these classes to give that impression to you. But I also want you to see that when we think there's something that tends to or seems to say something opposed to what so much of the Bible teaches, if we'll let the Holy Spirit show us, there are answers. There are answers for us. Amen? Is that fair enough? Okay. Now, I think we might have a minute or two. Um, does anybody have a question about any of this? Right. But um but hearing that it's written to a different audience as though to a a a small letter to the saints as well as those Jewish people who actually were were answering questions and and not just taking it on. I mean to me that cleared it up as well, you know, I because I really felt like I like I every every day I was losing my salvation, you know, for a long time so You know, again, and I I wish more pastors would explain that. I hardly ever read from the book of Hebrews that I don't mention it. I use, I've mentioned it in here how many times, those of you who've been here from the beginning, just about every time (coughs) we go to Hebrews, I say, hey, there's something you need to know about Hebrews. I usually do something similar with the book of James, and I think I did it in here a couple times as well. And that is, James reads uh, much differently than any of the other epistles. And that's because he was Jesus' half-brother, grew up in the home with him, didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah until after his resurrection. And that's when he became James the Apostle. And so there's insight that James has because of his upbringing with Jesus that, that other folks, amen, you know, miss. And so, but yeah, I agree. I, I wish more folks would do that because I think, um, in other words, if you, if you start researching it, you'll, you'll find it. If you start digging and, and looking and, and uh, you know, um, especially in the original languages, you know, you, these things start coming up very quickly. And, and if you read the whole book of Hebrews with, with that backdrop of information, it's very easy for you to see, you know, when he shifts over speaking to Hebrews who have been born again. And he does that. It's not the whole book is written to people who haven't been saved. It's just an open letter to those who have been, those who have not been. And, and it's very clear to me um, the portions of Scripture that, that, you know, are both. Because even... even Jewish men and women who received Jesus, they still need that same teaching, you, right? Because they were, they were constantly pressure being applied to them to, um, to ride the fence, to do both, you know. And it's like, well, you know, what's it going to hurt? You know, I mean, we just believe in Jesus, but we'll still do the Old Testament sacrifices as well. 
And, um, you know, that's circumcision and all those things, you know. And, of course, Paul was just, whoo, you know, he, you know, obviously spoke very, um, you know, vocally strongly about these things. Uh, yes, Chad. As far as um, just everything that was happening with Job, yeah, I, I wish I wish again we there's just so many things and we spent a great deal of time on that. I, I think it's cassettes, so I don't believe that's a, a DVD. I mean CDs, you know, digital that we could email you or get to you. But um, obviously, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of confusion about the Book of Job and what it is that God was trying to reveal to us, you know, from those things. Um, ultimately, what you see is the things that affected Job was fear on his part, as well as um, a, a lack of understanding, and and things that happened in his life that he didn't understand, and and how he processed those things, and and ultimately when he turned to God, how God restored all of that to him. But again, to me as well, one of those baselines on Job was that Job was a man without a covenant. In other words, he had no operating agreement with God to protect him. So, you know, even though he served God faithfully, um, there, was, there was no covenant ag- agreement that came. Job's one of the oldest books in the Bible. We don't even, we're not really sure who wrote it. I personally believe, again, I have my beliefs, opinion, opinion, opinion alert, right, is that Solomon wrote it, okay? And so, and that's, a lot of people believe that. Um, and so, Without, I know other people have questions, but let me just give you one example of, of where Solomon was in his life. He said, life is vanity, it's a cruel joke, it's not worth living, you know, it promises you the moon and, and at the end it jerks the rug out from under you and it's just a, a cruel hoax, right? Well, the Bible records that and it records it in the sense from a truth perspective in that that was Solomon's perspective of his life and all that he had experienced in the culmination of his life. But that's not the truth that we live by. Does, does that make sense? In other words, life for me now as a redeemed son of God is, is not, it's not for me what it was for Solomon, if, if, if that makes sense. Again, I'm trying to compress too many things into one thing here. Um, so I would, again, I have people ask me all the time, what about Job? I don't mind that question. You know, I, I think read the book and really see all that God is saying to us there. Um, But for you and me, again, Job was a man without a covenant. Then comes the Abrahamic covenant. Now we live under even a better covenant than that, right? So my simple answer is, what about Jesus? You know, in other words, that's our focus is what he's done, you know, for us. So I apologize for chopping up that answer in, in bits and pieces. So, yes? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Great, Dean. Did I see your hand? He was just saying what really helped him was to understand Hebrews was not written to, to only born again people, that it was written to to people who had experienced Jesus' ministry. All the other letters are written to the church or to the saints or to a born-again believer, but with the exception of Hebrews. So, 
All right. And how that helped him with Hebrews 10, Hebrews 6. Yes, Ken. Why was circumcision? It was an outward marking of the flesh. Um, again, symbolic of, obviously there was blood involved, there was reproduction involved, there was um, cleanliness, physical cleanliness you know, involved in these things. And it just became the, the outward you know, marking of that blood covenant. As it, in other words, each member, male member of uh, Abraham's family entered into the covenant God made initially with Abraham by that practice. Um, and, yeah. Exactly. Renew that covenant, the blood covenant. Yeah. Yep. So, do you wish we'd have done something else or are you glad we did this? Okay. All right. All right. So, the bottom line of it really and truly is um, while we can learn a lot from Hebrews 6, um, it, it's, it's really not written to us. <laughs> it's, it's written to, to Jews who experienced the earthly ministry of Jesus and, 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 and never believed in him. I hope you know, that some folks read Hebrews and, and somehow got a copy of that letter or, or heard it and, and wound up coming to Jesus because of it. Um, but um, amen I told you at class one that all these classes will be different this one might be the most different one yet so alright so um, <clears throat> I need to pray uh, a couple of things um, if, if you're if you've been following along online and have met the requirements 30 of the 36 classes to receive a certificate please um, please email me text me or or call me. Um, I prefer email, might be the easiest way. Uh, Pastor Winslet at AOL.com. Uh, please don't try to do it through Facebook, okay? I, no offense, but I, I, I'm so busy, I don't have a lot of time to spend on Facebook. So, Pastor Winslet, uh, P A S T O R W I N S L E T T at AOL.com. I'll try to make a slide next week, but um, anyway, I want to get that word out to those folks because we want to. Uh, begin to start looking at who all is, is going to be uh, actually earning a, a completion certificate. Um, and uh, we've got all the records uh, for those who are present in the room. So next week is class 35. And um, we're going to shift gears and take what we've learned up until this point and look at what the Bible teaches us concerning the renewing of our minds the renewing of our minds. To me, um, <clears throat> we began this time together back in May. Uh, I'm sorry, in August of last year, finishing in May, back in August of last year. We, we began um, by, by defining discipleship. And, and one of the ways that I told you we can understand what discipleship truly is, I think perhaps better than any other way is discipleship is the renewing of the mind. It's the process through which the mind is renewed. Um, your spirit's way ahead of your thinking right now. In other words, who you became and what belongs to you because of who you became the day you became a new creation in Christ Jesus um, is far, far beyond anything you understand or I understand or our minds have caught up with yet. But here's the problem, okay? 
you can't live beyond your thinking. Um, there's more in you than any of us have experienced yet, but your soul, specifically the part of you that is your mind, that's part of your soul, it's that valve that we talk about that Andrew Womack calls the valve. It, it allows who you really are to flow through you. And um, so the ministry of reconciliation involves the renewing of the mind, the reconditioning of the mind. Our minds were conditioned by this world and by the way we lived in the past. And Father's wanting to renew and recondition our minds. And that's how we experience tremendous life transformation, tremendous life change through the renewing of the mind. Okay, so we'll, we'll finish up this year uh, class 35 and then 36 with renewing the mind. Amen. Father, thank you for this time together this evening. Thank you for helping us, Lord, dig through some tedious stuff and, and some detailed things. But, um, Father, I just thank you for the Holy Spirit, and he's the one who reveals truth and convinces us. Um, help us to lay hold of your wisdom, of your goodness, of what you've done for us, and may it, Lord, motivate us to purify our lives even as Christ is pure. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, your love, good things coming.